0: Well, good morning again, and thanks to Andrea Hamilton for being our guest worship leader today, and uh, so appreciate your ministry. I know those of you who are at Women's Retreat are are no stranger to Andrea, and she's been here in our main services as well. You know, in the early second century, um, a Jewish soldier named Simeon Bar Kosova burst onto the scene of Jewish history. It was about 100 years after the death of Jesus and about 60 years after the end of the first Jewish war against the Romans. That war ended in 70 A.D. when the Roman armies marched into the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, just as Jesus predicted would happen decades earlier. About 60 years after that temple was destroyed, the Roman emperor Hadrian made a promise to the Jewish people that he would allow them to rebuild their destroyed temple. But then Hadrian broke that promise and decided instead that he was going to build a temple to the Roman god Jupiter on top of the ruins of the Jewish temple. Well, as you might imagine, this enraged the Jewish people. And in 132 AD, that rage erupted into violence, sparking a second Jewish war against the Romans. And that's where we meet Simeon bar Kosova. Simeon was the primary military leader of this second rebellion against the Romans. And against all odds, Simeon's army drove out the Romans out of Israel and established an independent state for the nation of Israel. Simeon was hailed as a hero, a military genius, the man who single-handedly helped the Jewish people take back their independence from the much larger and much stronger Roman Empire. A rabbi in Israel named Akiva proclaimed Simeon to be the promised Jewish Messiah, and most Jewish people agreed. In fact, Akiva changed Simeon's name from Simeon bar Kosava to Simeon bar Kokba, which in Hebrew means son of the morning, a title for the Messiah. Most Jewish people in Jerusalem at that time believed that this new independent state of Israel was the start of the Messianic Age predicted by the Old Testament prophets, and they would be led now by their Messiah, Simeon. But their celebration was short-lived because three years later, the Romans recaptured Israel and executed Simeon. You see, Simeon bar Kosova was just one of dozens of Jewish people in the first and early second century who were believed to be the Messiah. Jesus was not the only one. Now, fast forward from the second century to the 20th century, and the birth of a Jewish man named Menichem Mendel Schneerson, born in Russia. Then coming to the United States as an immigrant, Schneerson would become one of the most influential Jewish rabbis of the 20th century. And although he died in 1994, his Kabad movement is still one of the most influential groups in modern day Judaism. And during Schneerson's lifetime, many of his followers came to believe that he was the promised Messiah. And even today, 28 years after his death, the Chabad movement is split between followers who believe Schneerson was the promised Messiah and those who don't. You see, there's never been a shortage of people making messianic claims about themselves or about other people. In the 18th century, Anne Lee, the founder of the Shakers, considered herself to be the Messiah. The Reverend Sun Myung Moon, a Korean religious leader and the, the founder of the Washington Times media outlet, claimed to be the Messiah throughout his life. In fact, Moon's followers, commonly called Moonies, still believe after his death that he was the promised Messiah. A former professional soccer player and conspiracy theorist named David Ike started claiming to be the promised Messiah back in the 1990s. Ike was the source of the conspiracy theory that COVID-19 was being caused by 5G mobile phone networks. There's never been a shortage of people making messianic claims about themselves or about others. What exactly do we mean by this word Messiah? Well, the word Messiah comes from a Hebrew word that means anointed one or chosen one. The word Christ is simply the Greek version of the word Messiah. It also means anointed one or chosen one. And the entire idea of a Messiah or a Christ comes originally from the religion of Judaism. The ancient Hebrews believed that one day God would send them an anointed deliverer. And this anointed one, this Messiah, this Christ would save the Jewish people and would usher in a time of peace and prosperity and security for the nation of Israel. And lots of people throughout human history have been proclaimed to be that Messiah, including Jesus of Nazareth, Simeon bar Kosova, Rabbi Schneerson, Reverend Moon. How would we know if someone was the promised Messiah? Well, here at Glenkirk, we've been in this series after Easter called Common Questions About Jesus. And in this series, rather than going through a book of the Bible or a section of the Bible, we've been honestly looking at some of the most common questions non-Christians have about Jesus. This is an apologetics-oriented series as we seek to give honest, informed answers to sincere questions that people might have about Jesus. So far, we looked at the questions, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Did Jesus even exist at all? And then last Sunday on Mother's Day, Caitlin Shan looked at the question, what was Jesus' family like? And today, we're going to look at the question, was Jesus this promised Messiah? What sets Jesus apart from people like Simeon bar Kosova or Rabbi Schneerson or Reverend Moon or David Icke? Today we're going to see how Jesus lines up against three different qualifications that come from Judaism for the Messiah, and we're going to see how Jesus lines up. So the first qualification we're going to talk about is the Messiah's ancestry, the ancestry of the Messiah. We find the very first promise about a coming Messiah in the very first book of the Bible. Jewish people call this book Beersheath, which is the Hebrew word for beginning, and Christians call this book Genesis, which is the Greek word for, you guessed it, beginning. And in Genesis 12, in Beersheath chapter 12, God makes a promise to Israel's forefather Abraham that someday one of Abraham's descendants would come into the world and undo the curse of sin and replace it with the blessing of salvation. And although the word Messiah is not used in Genesis 12, both ancient and modern Jewish people understand that seed of Abraham, as a promise about the coming Messiah. Later in Genesis, God reiterates this promise to Abraham's son Isaac, and again to Isaac's son Jacob. And still later in Genesis, Jacob has 12 sons, and those 12 sons, their descendants would go on to become the 12 tribes that would make up the nation of Israel. In Genesis chapter 49, God promises that out of one of those tribes, the tribe of Judah, a future king, a royal messiah would come. It would have the rightful throne of Israel. And then much, much later, 900 years later or so, in the book of 2 Samuel, God promises that this future Messiah would also come from the dynasty or the family of King David, arguably Israel's greatest king. And so here's how the ancestry of the Messiah is pictured in the Old Testament. The Messiah would be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would come from the tribe of Judah and that he would be from the dynasty or the family of King David. This is how the Hebrew Scriptures picture the ancestry of the Messiah. So how does Jesus line up to that ancestry? Well, fortunately, the Bible tells us, it gives, the New Testament gives us two genealogies for Jesus. One's in Matthew. The first book of the New Testament, the other one's in Luke, the third book of the New Testament. And neither of these are complete genealogies because they cover thousands of years. And these two genealogies differ from each other, which has led some people to suggest that this is an example of a contradiction in the New Testament, two different genealogies. But anyone who's ever done any ancestry work, I know I have done a little bit. Maybe you have too. Anyone knows that everybody has two family trees, right? One on their father's side and one on their mother's side. Luke most likely traces Jesus' ancestry through his mother Mary, giving us his biological ancestry. And Matthew most likely traces Jesus's ancestry through Joseph, who although he wasn't his birth father, was his legal adoptive father. So Mary would represent Jesus's biological ancestry and Joseph as his adoptive father would represent his legal ancestry. So how does Jesus line up from these two genealogies? Well, Luke tracing Jesus's biological lineage through Mary, traces Jesus' family tree to King David, the tribe of Judah, Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. And then Luke goes all the way to Adam. Matthew, tracing Jesus' legal lineage through his adoptive father, Joseph, also traces Jesus' lineage to King David, the tribe of Judah, Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. You can read these genealogies yourself in Luke chapter 3 and in Matthew chapter 1. His ancestry uniquely qualifies Jesus to be the Messiah. If these genealogies are accurate, there's something that Jesus never could have created or controlled on his own. And they show that he is uniquely qualified, both in terms of his bloodline and his legal heritage, to make a claim to be the promised Messiah. Jesus fits the ancestry qualification. There's a second qualification to consider the circumstances of the Messiah's birth, the circumstances of his birth. And here we move beyond ancestry, biological and legal ancestry, to consider how the Messiah would be born into our world. And let's consider a couple of circumstances that we find in ancient Judaism about how the Messiah would come into the world. The Hebrew Scriptures promise that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. We find this about 700 years before Jesus was born, the Hebrew prophet Isaiah makes this messianic promise. Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And we'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Both Matthew and Luke's account of the birth of Jesus tell us that when Mary conceived that she was a virgin... At her conception and when Jesus was born. In Matthew's words, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. This miraculous conception of the Messiah would set the Messiah apart to be uniquely qualified to be the mediator between God and the human race. More about that next week when we ask the question Was Jesus God? Another circumstance relates to where the Messiah would be born. About 600 years before the birth of Jesus, a Hebrew prophet named Micah predicted this, but you, Bethlehem, Epaphrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. This ancient messianic promise says that the birth of the Messiah would be in Bethlehem. And both Matthew and Luke's account of the birth of Jesus named Bethlehem as the birthplace of Jesus. Again, this is not something that Jesus himself or his later followers could have orchestrated. The circumstances of his birth uniquely qualify Jesus to be the promised Messiah, circumstances of his birth. Conceived of a virgin, born in the town of Bethlehem, these qualifications come straight out of ancient Judaism and their own Hebrew scriptures. Along with his ancestry, both his biological and his legal ancestry, the circumstances of his birth qualify him to be the Messiah. Finally, let's consider some of the actions that were expected of the Messiah, some of the actions of the Messiah. Now, here things get a little bit more controversial because the Hebrew Bible actually presents us with with two broad categories of messianic actions people expected. The, the, The first category relates to the Messiah's suffering, which is where the New Testament... As we'll see in a couple of minutes. And the Messiah's sufferings are emphasized in places in the Hebrew Scriptures like Isaiah chapters 52 and 53, as well as many of the ancient Psalms in the Hebrew Scriptures. And in these places, the promised Messiah is pictured as a suffering servant, someone who will suffer for the sins of Israel and ultimately die in Israel's place to bring forgiveness of their sins. But the other category of messianic actions we find in the Hebrew Scriptures relates to the Messiah's victories. We find the Messiah's victories promised in many of the ancient um, prophets, other parts of Isaiah, in Ezekiel, in Jeremiah, some of the minor prophets. And here the Messiah is pictured as a conquering king who vanquishes Israel's enemies. Most messianic movements in the first and second century, like the revolution led by Simeon bar Kosova, focused on the messianic victories. Now, because of these two broad categories, sufferings and victories, some rabbis said that maybe there's two messiahs, a suffering messiah and a conquering messiah. But according to the New Testament, Jesus believed that both the suffering and the victories go together. Jesus believed that messianic suffering came first, and only through that suffering would come messianic victories. The Lamb of God would come before the Lion of God. The suffering servant before the conquering King. Death before resurrection. The first coming of the Messiah before the second coming of the Messiah. And the early church understanding the Messiah this way found this message to be a stumbling block to many of the Jewish people of their day. Because people wanted a conquering Messiah, not a crucified Messiah. They wanted resurrection without death. They wanted victory without suffering. You see, Jesus takes all of these messianic promises and interprets them very differently than anyone else of his generation was interpreting them. So let's consider some of the messianic actions. Um, The Messiah would be anointed by the Spirit. After all, that's what the word Messiah or Christ means, anointed one. Just as priests and prophets and kings in the Old Testament were publicly anointed with oil to set them apart. And 700 years before Jesus, the prophet Isaiah says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, anointed one. In whom I delight, I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. And at Jesus' baptism, the Father anointed Jesus with the spirit in the form of a dove. And God spoke and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. All four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John recount this event. Jesus was anointed by the spirit. Another messianic action is performing miracles. The prophet Isaiah predicted that when the Messiah would come, the eyes of the blind would be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. And when Jesus' cousin, John, started having doubts about whether Jesus was really the Messiah or not because Jesus kept talking about messianic suffering instead of victory. According to Matthew eleven five, 5, Jesus says, Go back and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor." Jesus was a messianic figure by performing miracles. Another action is presenting himself as king of Israel. After all, the Messiah would be heir to King David's dynasty, the rightful king. And about 500 years before the birth of Jesus, a Hebrew prophet named Zechariah said this, Rejoice greatly, Zion! Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, Zechariah 9.9. And this is exactly what Jesus did on Palm Sunday when he rode into Jerusalem before Passover on a donkey and presented himself as king. He presented himself to his own people not as a military, conquering, vanquishing, violent king like Simeon Bar would do a hundred years later, but he presented himself as a humble king, a suffering servant, ready to die for his people. It may surprise you, but the Old Testament predicts the Messiah would be crucified. Crucified. Again, from the prophet Zechariah, God says through the prophet, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Notice God himself is speaking in this passage. And God himself is the one who his own people would pierce. And Jesus was pierced. As the Roman executioners pierced him with nails in his hands and his feet. And his side was pierced with a spear after he died. Finally, the Old Testament predicts that the Messiah would be risen from the dead. Messiah would be risen from the dead. Um, In describing the Messiah as suffering servant, the prophet Isaiah says, After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. And of course, all four of the Gospels present the claim that he is risen. That on the third day, Jesus rose from again through the resurrection. Jesus saw the light of light once more. And these are just a handful of examples. I could give you dozens more. His actions uniquely qualify Jesus to be the Messiah. His actions. Out of the hundreds, perhaps the thousands of people who've been called the Messiah or claimed to be the Messiah throughout the centuries... Jesus stands as unique. His ancestry, the circumstances of his birth, his actions uniquely qualify him to be the promised Messiah. During his life, he mostly focused on the ancient suffering messianic promises. But Jesus also said a time would come in the future when he would fulfill the messianic promises about victory. Now, it's important to note that that Jesus fulfilled many of the Messianic promises in ways that no one could have anticipated or expected. See, all the various subgroups within Judaism, all the denominations like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and and, um, the Zealots, they each had their own playbook of what they thought the Messiah would do when he came. And Jesus didn't fit any of those playbooks. For example, instead of only suffering for Israel's sins, Jesus said he was suffering for everyone's sins. Instead of destroying the Romans and restoring Israel to their national independence, like Simeon would do a hundred years later for a couple of years, Jesus said he was expanding the boundaries of Israel to include everyone who trusts in him, including the Romans. Instead of recapturing the land of Palestine from the Romans, as Simeon would do, Jesus said his kingdom would recapture all the earth, all of creation. You see, as a Jewish man making messianic promises, Jesus challenged his own people to look at these messianic promises with fresh eyes. Eyes that included God's love for everyone instead of just some. Eyes that could see God's desire to bring blessing to all nations instead of just one nation. And that didn't fit into anyone's playbook, even though it was found in their own scriptures. I think the biggest takeaway from our answer to this question of whether Jesus was the Messiah has to do with God's faithfulness. God is faithful even across centuries to keep his promises. But God often keeps his promises in ways that are unexpected and surprising. Just like the Jewish people of the first century and second century, we carry our own playbooks of how we think God is going to fulfill his promises in our lives and how he's going to fulfill his promises in our world when he comes again in glory. In fact, some Christians make elaborate charts and timelines and they write books and and produce movies based on their playbook of how they think God is going to keep his promises. But just as Jesus fulfilled God's promises in surprising ways that didn't fit any of the playbooks, of the people of God back then. I'm reminded that God may choose to reveal His promises in your life and my life and His promises in our world in ways that we never could have anticipated, expected, or imagined. And often God's way of fulfilling His promises to us are bigger, grander, more expansive than we ever could have imagined. Look no further than Jesus, the Messiah. Not just the Messiah for Israel, but the Messiah for everyone, for the whole earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a promise-keeping God as we've sung today. And Lord, help us beware of how our own expectations may blind us from seeing how you're fulfilling your promises to us and in our world in surprising and unexpected ways. Thank you for Jesus. The one whom you anointed with your spirit. The one who came, Lord, to deliver us as the suffering lamb of God, the one who would be sacrificed for our sins, and the one who will one day come again as the Lion of God to bring justice and make all things right. And as we live in the in-between times, help us trust you to fulfill your promises to us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.